They'd reached the mysterious lands of the mythic Hyperboreans in the far north, what was to them the edge of the known world. Huddled together for warmth in the hall of their craft, they half expected to be attacked by hordes of savage men dressed in furs, or else wild beasts of a sort no civilized person had ever laid eyes on before. Instead, they recorded a series of strange phenomena in the night sky, dancing lights of yellow and green, arcing across the heavens that we know today as the Aurora Borealis, or Northern Lights. In addition, they also traversed a sea where, quote, neither earth, water, nor air exist separately, but a sort of concretion of all these, unquote. This latter description is believed to have been an occurrence known as pancake ice, in which the sea's waves form slush ice into rounded objects resembling the most delicious of breakfast staples. Based upon what I've just described, you'd be justified in thinking that I provided you with excerpts from a travelogue from the famed Age of Exploration. But unlike the seafaring quests and voyages of such figures as Christopher Columbus, Vasco da Gama, or Sir Francis Drake, this account was written several centuries, even millennia, prior to any Italian, Portuguese, or Englishman casting off for points unknown. The man responsible for this particular venture was none other than an ancient Greek known as Pythias of Massalia. Hailing from what's now the port city of Marseille in southern France, he set out in about 325 BC to explore and map what were then known as the remote and distant lands of Europe's far north. Upon his return, he wrote a lengthy and thorough account of his travels, the like of which, sadly, has been lost to us due to the ravages of time. How then do we know of his epic journey? What specific lands and peoples did he encounter? And how did this, for the time, massive undertaking change European history forever? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and let's join Pythias's crew and embark on this most mesmerizing journey right now on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Like most societies and civilizations in antiquity, the Greeks saw themselves as the center, and therefore the cultural light of their world. Those outside the boundaries of their various city-states, with few exceptions, were seen as uncouth barbarians as far as they were concerned. Still, as the land itself was low in natural resources and had no major waterways like those in Egypt, the Nile, and Mesopotamia, the Tigris and Euphrates, from which to sustain themselves, they had to turn to the sea in order to seek fertile land and necessary supplies elsewhere. Thus they were quick to adapt to a seafaring life, and, within a relatively short amount of time, mastered the waves. Greek culture soon spread to such disparate places as the north and west coasts of what they called Anatolia, present-day Turkey, the southern coast of Italy, and much of this island of Sicily, the south of France, and even as far as southeastern Spain. It was in southern France that our story begins, in a Greek colony known as Massalia, where Pythias was born in around 350 BC. The details and circumstances surrounding his early life are unknown. In fact, little is known about his life period, but having grown up in a thriving port, he no doubt dreamt as a child of one day hopping aboard one of the various trading vessels and setting sail for far-flung lands. Much of what the average Greek knew of the world in those days was centered primarily around southern Europe, North Africa, the Near East, and the Mediterranean Sea, this last of which was considered by many to be the center of the world at the time. Fun fact, the name Mediterranean comes from Latin meaning middle of the earth. Anything beyond these regions was seen as otherworldly, where strange animals and even stranger people lived in bizarre, surreal landscapes where the laws of nature no longer applied. As this was the reigning belief at the time, few dared to venture beyond the proverbial comfort zones of the world they knew. But as far back as anyone could remember, strange stories of the mysterious and uncharted north had reached Greek shores from traders and merchants who themselves had heard whispers of what lay beyond the fringes of the known world. The tales they told were wild, to say the least. They spoke of a land of perpetual snow, a part of which was temperate and warm thanks to the protection of Apollo, the sun god. What's more, the native peoples of this region were the most beloved of that selfsame deity, and were believed to have been responsible for the construction of the famous temple at Delphi dedicated to him. By Pythias's 
time, such stories were passed off as nothing more than pure fantasy, and while the genesis and exact circumstances behind his inspiration for his voyage are unclear, something about these tales must have struck with him and urged him to explore these lands for himself. So it was that, having secured a sturdy sailing vessel and amassed a small crew, he cast off in around 325 BC for the mythic Hyperborea. The first hurdle he and his men would have to cross was passing through what was then known as the Pillars of Heracles, now the Strait of Gibraltar, which separates the relative safety of the Mediterranean from the open ocean of the Atlantic, where the southern tip of Spain and the northernmost point of present-day Morocco meet. While the Greeks had become skilled mariners by that point, the Mediterranean was still largely dominated by the greatest naval and maritime power of the day, the Phoenicians. As they controlled the strait, no ships from other nations were allowed to enter or exit. As Pythias's account has long been lost, historians have had to speculate just how he and his crew managed to make it through without being spotted. Some have posited that they traveled overland via the Loire and Garonne rivers in what's now France. Others believe that they may have hugged the coast and under cover of nightfall so as to avoid the prying eyes of the Phoenicians. Still more say that a lapse in the Phoenicians' guarding of the strait presented the crew with an opportunity to pass. Either way, they somehow made it through successfully, and soon found themselves turning north just off the coast of what we now know as Portugal. It's unclear whether Pythias and his crew made a straight shot north, or if they made stops along the way. The later accounts of Strabo and other Greek and Roman historians who had the privilege of actually reading this account indicate that he may have made landfall so as to gather and record data and take measurements. The most likely places where he did this were along the Spanish and French coasts, likely sheltered natural bays where the sometimes furious currents of the Atlantic couldn't wreak havoc on his vessel. In any case, the first significant passage that reaches us is his arrival in a strange and distant land, the like of which no Greek had ever seen before. The name he bestowed upon this place is believed to have been borrowed from the Celtic-speaking peoples he encountered there. Sadly, the original Celtic name is lost to us, but the name he gave it will undoubtedly sound familiar, Bretanique. By referring to the etymology of other Britannic languages, namely the Welsh Inis Bridain and the Scottish and Irish Gaelic Cruth, meaning form, Pythias's moniker is likely a compound word meaning something along the lines of land of the painted people, a reference to the practice the inhabitants made of covering their bodies in elaborate tattoos or body paint. While historians after him believed that the island's population was comprised of different Celtic tribes, Pythias made no effort or even attempt to categorize them. He did, however, describe their living conditions, as well as some of their customs. They lived in simple thatched cottages, for example, which were cylindrical buildings with a square doorway as a means for an entrance. Several reconstructions of these structures can be seen in historic and archaeological sites in present-day Wales. They were, quote, of simple manners, unquote, and were ruled over by a chieftain or king. In times of war, they rode chariots into battle, which Pythias was quick to liken to his own people during the mythic Trojan War, or else on horseback. Their diet was comprised primarily of grain, which they stored in subterranean storehouses and used to bake bread. They also foraged for wild berries and nuts, and in the way of meat would hunt deer, rabbit, and other native species. They also had their own gods to whom they prayed, dispelling the Greek mindset that the Hyperboreans were of and worshipped Apollo. These deities were tied to nature, and often guarded specific places which were therefore deemed sacred. But more than any cultural exchange, Pythias struck the proverbial jackpot when he discovered, in the modern region of Cornwall, that tin was being produced. This particular region of Bretanique was rich in the ore needed to make it. Prior to this discovery, the only other place known to the Greeks where tin deposits could be found was in the mountainous regions of Bactria, what's now Afghanistan, a journey several weeks and thousands of miles long when brought overland via the ancient Silk Road. With this stockpile having been discovered in Bretanique, the supply and trek would be cut short by many days and be transported by horse and boat down the Rhone River in France all the way to the Mediterranean, saving a great deal of time and money.
this discovery would forever change the economics and trade networks of the great southern European and North African societies. Pythias was quick to note, too, of the pleasant nature of these particular Celts. They were, quote, civilized in manner, and especially hospitable to strangers, he wrote, due to their dealings with foreign merchants from Western Europe, unquote. Despite his pleasant stay, he and his crew had to depart, as there was more of the far north to be discovered and mapped. Bidding his gracious hosts a fond farewell, they continued along the western coast of the island, ultimately passing what's now Scotland along the way. As they were among the first non-Celts to bear witness to the strange land, Pythias christened it with the name Orcas, a reference to the large dolphins, likely killer whales that lived in the seas off its coast. It was this name that the Scots would later adapt into the Orkney Islands, a chain of islands just to the north. Here, the surviving fragments of Pythias' expedition get interesting. After passing the northern tip of Britain, he proceeded, quote, for six days, unquote, to a mysterious land he referred to as Thule. The only problem is that, while he indeed ventured further north, he forgot to mention whether he followed a straight line or turned either west or east. As such, ancient geographers and historians who reference his account in their own works were divided as to where exactly this was. Strabo, for instance, posited that Pythias meant the northernmost of the British Isles, a place that modern historians believe to have been the largest island in the Hebrides, called Lewis, which, while technically part of Scotland, are quite remote, some of which can be found within the boundaries of the Arctic Circle. This fact is backed by the accounts of the naturalist Pliny the Elder, in whose own work he states that such islands, quote, had no nights in midsummer when the sun was passing through the sign of the crab, unquote, a reference to the constellation Cancer, which coincides with the summer solstice. This reference to the famed midnight sun indeed places Thule within the Arctic Circle, but where exactly was it? The Greek mathematician and astronomer Eratosthenes made an attempt in antiquity to answer this very question. By referring to Pythias' account and using Massalia as the crew's starting point, or baseline, he was able to calculate the approximate latitude of Thule. According to him, it lay between 64.8 and 64.9 degrees north, which would place it considerably short of the Arctic Circle, but in what's now the city of Trondheim in Norway. The people Pythias encountered there were likely the Germanic ancestors of the Norse, in whose lands the days ranged anywhere from 21 to 22 hours during the summer months, as recounted in a text by Geminus of Rhodes, a Greek scholar. Quote, the barbarians showed us the place where the sun goes to rest, for it was the case in these parts that the nights were very short, in some places two, in others three hours long, so that the sun rose again a short time after it had set. Unquote. Indeed, several parts of Norway experienced short nights during the summer due to their proximity to the Arctic Circle, which seemingly corroborates both Pythias' account as well as the calculations performed by Eratosthenes. Has the mystery of Thule been solved at last? Alas, its whereabouts continue to remain hotly contested, with some points positing Iceland or even Greenland as possible candidates. We may never know for certain where exactly Thule is, but what is clear is that, upon making his return journey, he and his men sailed through the Baltic Sea, circumnavigating and making landfall in such distant, from the Greek world at least, lands as present-day Finland, Russia, Ukraine, Poland, and Germany. We know for certain that, based upon quoted passages from his account, that he traveled some ways up the Don River in the vicinity of what's now the Russian capital of Moscow. He also recorded the lives of Germanic peoples in Central Europe, describing their villages, which were often situated along bodies of water like the North Sea itself, or else what we know today as the Rhine River. In Poland, he saw amber for the first time, the fossilized tree resin which can be found there in abundance, and was a prized commodity among the ancient Slavic populations. Noting its importance, as well as the insects and arachnids that have been caught within it, he traded some of his own goods for it, bringing it back to Masalia with him, where it was regarded as an exotic curiosity. 
Upon his return, Pythaeus was lauded as a hero, for he had been the first person in the civilized world to have traversed the mysterious lands of the mythic Hyperboreans. With the details still fresh in his mind, he laid down everything he'd seen and experienced in a text known as On the Oceans, the like of which had never been written before and fired the public's imagination. A widely read and highly influential work throughout the Mediterranean world, it was the leading authority on the geography of the European North for several centuries after its composition. The only known copy of it, likely the original, was housed in the famed Library of Alexandria, which perhaps accounts for its now being lost, as the library was notoriously burned by the Romans when they invaded Egypt in 48 BC. As such, what we do know about it can only be inferred from the texts of other Greek and Roman scholars. And yet, seeing how often it pops up in others' works, it's clear just how significant it was. When we talk about the fabled age of exploration, those self-same figures I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, along with countless others, all make the list. That's not to say that their discoveries aren't worth mentioning or any less important than those of Pythias, but it's indeed a shame that the latter has gone mostly unnoticed to the world at large, when so much of what the ancient world knew about northern Europe was because of his incredible findings. While the account of his experiences is gone forever, perhaps one day he'll receive the credit he's sorely due and his accomplishments will at last be admired. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it just as enlightening as I did. By a show of hands, who thinks like Columbus Day, we should set aside a holiday for the great Pythias of Massalia? If you agree, then let me know in the comments section of my latest post on Instagram at history underscore loves underscore company. If you're a history nerd like me and enjoy these podcasts, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash history loves company and click the support button. Once you do, you'll find three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing also help me in big ways, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Join me again next week for another intriguing episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time.